Amen. How are we doing, church? Doing good? About half, that's good. I uh, hope you'll be better by the time you leave. Grab your Bibles if you got one. If you don't, there's one in the seat back in front of you. It is our gift to you. Go to Joshua chapter 24. It's the last chapter in Joshua. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible, and this is the last of our 11-week series. And the reason that we show uh, videos like that about Before All Things is we're on this two-year discipleship journey asking this fundamental question, is he before all things in your life. And we don't show these videos to show you what our people are doing, but what God is doing in and through our people. And so, um, you know, God may be partnering, having us partner with the Boys and Girls Club to, to, to plant churches right here in Jacksonville. Not only that, this week in Africa, we planted, you planted five churches in East Africa. So way to go. You didn't even know you did it, right? You're awesome. Didn't even know it. So, <clears throat> and the reason we're asking this question um, it's out of Colossians chapter 1 uh, that, that just says that he is before all things. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes there's some things in my world that try to creep their way up and get in front of the one that's supposed to be before all things. And what we're going to find here in Joshua chapter 24 is Joshua, in a different way, he's basically going to give the same kind of challenge and ask the same kind of question. And here's why we're going to pay special attention to what Joshua says, because this is his very last sermon, this is his very last speech, and he knows it. At the end of chapter 24 is his funeral service, and so he knows this is the last thing he's going to say. And you know that your last words are going to be your most important words. Every parent in here knows what I'm talking about, or everybody that has parents knows what I'm talking about. It's those last words you say to your kids right before you drop them off, right? What do you do? You're like, hey, listen to me, listen to me. Look at my face. Look, listen. Say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. Yes, sir, and no, sir. And brush your teeth. For the love of God, would you brush your teeth and wear clean hair so you do not embarrass our whole family, right? And then, and then I always make sure that my children can hear this, and I look at the parents that I'm dropping them off with, and I say, and if they give you a hard time, then you wear them out. And my kids look at me like, oh, these random people are going to whip me? And the parents look at me that day, too. They're like, I'm not whipping your kids. To which I say, hey, listen, I whip yours all the time. So I just figured we was just, you know, <laughs> tit for tat. I wouldn't really do it, but then they won't ever leave their kids at my house. So this is what Joshua is doing. He's gathering the people of Israel together, and these are his very last words. And if you pick it up in chapter 24, verse 14, this is the end of his sermon or his speech. And he says, now, therefore... Now, anytime the Bible says therefore, you got to see what the therefore is there for. And what the therefore is there for is through all of chapter 23 and, and the first 13 verses of chapter 24, essentially what Joshua does is he recounts the faithfulness of God throughout the history of the nation of Israel. He takes them all the way back to Abram, and he's like, there was a man named Abram, which means father, and God called him to leave the, the Ur of Chaldees. And to go into a land that he would show him that he would promise him. And he gave him this promise that he would have a son. But he was like 80 years old when he got that promise. And he said that one day, Abram, I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. And you're going to have so many kids that they're going to outnumber the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. That was the promise that he gave him. And by faith, Abraham left his homeland and went to the promised land. And God put, I mean, Abraham put his faith in God and God counted his faith as righteousness and Abraham became a friend of God. And Abraham gets this gift, this promised son named Isaac. And by faith, Abraham takes Isaac up onto a mountain and he's willing to give back to God the promise that God had given him. And then God steps in and says, no, 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 do not sacrifice your son. In about 2,000 years, we'll use mine. And instead, he gives him a ram to be sacrificed instead of his son. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob means um, deceiver one or deceitful one. And then one night, Jacob has this wrestling match with God, and God changes his name to Israel, which means wrestles with God. And then Israel has a bunch of kids. They can't stop. They got 12, and the youngest one's named Joseph. And the youngest one, Joseph, he's kind of full of himself. He wears this coat of many colors and talks about how awesome he is. His brothers beat him up and sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, and then God elevates him from a slave boy in Egypt to like senior VP over all of Egypt. Egypt. Then this entire, this famine hits the entire world and all of Jacob or all of uh, Israel's family, they all end up in Egypt. And then God was preserving the nation of Israel and they're there for hundreds of years. And then they end up being a slave nation in Egypt. Then one day God picks, of all the people in the entire world, he picks this kid who was a murderer and on a run for his life and he's just kind of wandering out in the desert and he bumps into God there in the form of this burning bush and this burning bush God says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the entire world, 
And you tell him that you're, you have a message for me, and the message is, it's time to let my people go. And Moses said, who should I say sent me? And he says, you tell him that Yahweh, I am that I am, has sent you. And so sure enough, Moses goes eyeball to eyeball with the most powerful man in the universe up to that point and says, God says it's time to let his people go. And at first, Pharaoh's like, no way. And then God sends 10 plagues, plague after plague after plague. And each one of the individual plagues are just to squish all the little G gods that live there in Egypt. Then finally on the 10th plague, the granddaddy of them all, God says to Moses, you tell our people to go get a, a perfect spotless lamb and shed his blood. And you take the blood of that lamb and you put it on the doorpost of a home. And, and the angel of death is going to pass over. And he's going to take the firstborn of everybody, of every, of every animal and of every man, except for those who have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home. He will pass over those homes. And sure enough, Moses does it, and so there's weeping and wailing all throughout Egypt, and then Pharaoh comes along and says, all right, get your people out of here. And so Moses and about two million Jews, they head towards the Red Sea, and then they get face-to-face -face with the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh changes his mind, and he sends Pharaoh's army after the people to squish them, to crush them. And then God says, take heart, do not be afraid, for the Lord will fight for you. And so as Moses lifts his hands, then the Red Sea parts, and the children of Israel walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. And remember, Joshua is telling them this. He's saying, hey, this is, these are our people. You see, God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises. And then God takes Moses, and he takes him up to Mount Sinai, and he gives him the Ten Commandments there. He says, Moses, y'all are going to be my people, and, and I am going to be your God. And he gives us these Ten Commandments to be both a map and a mirror, a map to show us how we should navigate life, and a mirror to let us know that we cannot do it on our own. And since we can't do it on our own, Leviticus 16, God institutes this substitutionary atoning sacrificial system. He puts a tabernacle right in the middle of town. And, and one time a year, the high priest is gonna go into the Holy of Holies, this place that represents the very presence of God. And that high priest is gonna shed the blood of a spotless lamb. He's gonna sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant or on our broken laws to cover over our sin for one year. And then Joshua says, and that, that generation, because they were grumbling and complaining, God let that generation die off. And then one day he came to me and he said, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be afraid for the Lord your God is with you. And you are going to take the people of God and you're going to go into the promised land that I promised your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And sure enough, the pastors, the Levites, they picked up that Ark of the Covenant and they headed right towards the Jordan. And when they put their toes into the Jordan, God's hand moved and it split the waters. And the people walked on dry land into the promised land. And they, and they began to live in houses that they did not build. And they began to drink wine that they did not plant. They began to eat out of refrigerators that they did not stop. And so what Joshua is saying here is, therefore, since God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises, since if we look over our shoulders and what we can see is the faithfulness of God over and over and over, the way he says it in chapter 23, verses 8 through 11 is this. He says, but you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. Be careful, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. And that's what the therefore is there for. Now, therefore, since God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in all sincerity and in faithfulness. Now, that phrase that we find all throughout the scripture that says, fear the Lord, that doesn't just mean like be afraid of the Lord, though you might need to be a little bit. It, it really means that you need to see God for who he really is and see you in light of that. And we, when we begin to see God for who he really is, his holiness and his majesty and his power and his presence, then we begin to understand that he is much bigger than we could ever imagine, and we are much worse off than we ever thought. That we're not just bad people, we're dead people, crooked, depraved, and again, listen, I know your kindergarten teacher told you that you were a rainbow and a snowflake and a skittle and puppy's breath. She was lying to you too, okay? It's just true. I mean, let's just be honest. Nobody have, has ever treated you as bad as you, right? Nobody's lied to you more, broken more promises to you. It's just true. The worst part about you is you. You and I are the problem. But when we begin to see God in his holiness, in our infinite sinfulness, it does two things. 
It crushes both our ego and our insecurity. It crushes our ego because we realize that we're the problem, but it also crushes our insecurity because in the kingdom of heaven, you are kind of a big deal. Why? Because the infinite creator of the universe loves you so much that he bought you at a price, and the price that he was willing to pay for you is the only begotten son, Jesus Christ. So simultaneously, the fear of the Lord squishes our ego and it squishes our insecurity. And not only do we really know who we are, but because of whose we are, that means, that means we can see ourselves for who we really are. That's what he says. Therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. And now what he's going to do is going to give him a choice. He says, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your sight to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. In your Bibles, I want you to underline that. Choose this day whom you will serve. Honestly, we live in a culture right now that doesn't like to make choices. Likes to have all the choices open, kind of, hey, I'm a slow processor. I'm just kind of feeling this thing out. Joshua is like, well, that's tough. This is my last speech. Today's the day that you get to choose. In realms of following Jesus, not making a decision is a decision. And so Joshua would say, choose this day whom you're going to serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And then in a minute, he's going to give them the other choice, or you can serve the Lord. And so what I want to say to you today is this. You have a decision to make. Today, there's a line in the sand, and you and I have a decision to make. You get to choose this day whom you are going to serve. Now, in that day, there were a lot of idols in people's homes and lives, and they literally were like little carved images that you would put in your house. And though you and I probably don't have little carved images in our lives that we bow down to, every single one of us have a tendency to worship at the altar of something that is not God. Um, John Calvin said that you and I are idol-making factories, and that's just true. Like, I don't know about you, but if you're honest, and I know this is church, no place for that, but if you're honest, you know that there are these things that compete for the most important part of your life. And the reality is, is that in the throne room of your heart, there is one throne and only one thing can sit on that throne. And an idol these days, an idol is anything temporary that we treat as ultimate. An idol is anything made by the creator that we treat like it is the creator instead of creation. And the crazy thing is sometimes those idols can actually be good things, not negative things in our life. Sometimes the idols in our life can actually be gifts from God and we treat those gifts from God like they are our God. Can we just say this? Children make a terrible idol. Can I get an amen? Fundamentally, the reason that they make a a terrible idol is because they were created to leave you and forsake you. That's the point, all right? I know he's 33 and he's still in your basement, but he's supposed to be gone by now, all right? It's just true. Yet, our one true God it would never leave us or forsake us. And so, and it's easy, isn't it easy to take this gift from God and actually begin to worship them instead of train them up in the way that they should go? And can we just be honest about this? Like your wife could be your idol. And, and guys, wives make terrible gods, Right? Yeah, I wouldn't say anything either if I was sitting next to it. I don't know what he's talking about. No, I think you're amazing. I think you'd be a great God, okay? No, you wouldn't. It'd be terrible, okay? We'd all be dead. You know why? Because they'd just wake up in that mood one day. I think I'm going to kill everybody. What happened? I don't know. I just woke up this way. It's just true, all right? Your wife makes a terrible, terrible God. And so sometimes if we make a good thing a God thing, it's a really bad thing. And so what, what Joshua does here by naming all of these different idols, he's like, you got to pay attention because there's some idols in your life. Some of them came from the other side of the river. Some came from Egypt. Some came from the Amorites. And though we don't worship those kind of idols, it's my opinion that there's a lot of us that worship at the kind of good old red-blooded American idols that, that we struggle with all the time. One of the biggest ones is this, is success. There's a whole lot of us in the room, me included, and we worship at the altar of success. Now, if that's you and me, because it is, it's because it's ingrained in us to be successful. From the earliest days, I mean from kindergarten, you know what we're trained to do? To be the best, to be top of our class. I mean, I have a kindergartner and we have class rank and homework, right? Why? 
so that you can get into the right elementary school. Why? So that you can get to the right middle school. Why? So that you can get into the right high school, whether it's private or magnet or the college prep track. Why? So that you can, get a co- you can go to college and get a good degree. Why? So you can go to grad school and get another degree. Why? So you can move back in with your parents for a while so you can figure out what that $50,000 is worth, all right? Why? So that you can go get a job, a good job. Why? So that you can make a whole bunch of money. Why? To buy a whole bunch of stuff to impress a bunch of people that you don't even know. Why? And it's usually about that point where people start going, "Uh uh-oh, it's usually about my age. I'm 42 years old. I know it's a shocker to you, okay? I know I look much younger, but I am. (laughs) And it's usually at that point when you stop graduating from stuff, which is crazy, is it not? Have you been to a third grade graduation? Okay. I remember when Gretchen called me, you need to take Friday off from work and come to third grade graduation. I'm like, babe, that is not graduation. You're not graduating, you're just going to fourth grade. Now where I'm from, Dillon, South Carolina, sometimes it actually is the graduation. You know, all right, we're done with this. Back to the farm, all right. But we wanna try to nail all 12 if we can with our kids here, so. But when you kinda hit that cruising altitude and there is no more graduation, a lot of people stop, begin to scratch their head and begin to think, is this it? I mean, so why am I working so hard to buy a bunch of stuff that it's just going to end up in, in Hope's closet anyway? It's just true, is it not? Did you know, man, I don't care how successful you are, all the stuff you have, all the stuff you have is going to end in a garage sale. Unless you really load it, it's an estate sale. It's the same thing. <laughs> One just has drinks. That's the only difference. And you know what a shame it is that you spend your entire life like a greyhound on the greyhound track. You ever been to the Greyhound races? I know, nobody ever goes, but somehow they have money to build those huge buildings, all right? And here's what happened. Their entire life, the Greyhound chases that fake rabbit named Rusty. It's not even real. It's not even a real rabbit. They spend all of their days chasing after an illusion. It's not even real. And you look at that, and you're like, what a dumb dog. And every Monday, man, that alarm goes off, and we lose our mind to chase after something that's not even real. I don't know. It may be worse to sink your teeth into it and then realize you've been duped. You spend every day for the rest of your life being successful. Get to the top of the ladder and realize it's against the wrong wall. Now, I'm not saying don't be successful. Just define success the way God defines success. The way the Bible would define success is not accomplishment. It's obedience. So you leverage whatever God, whatever success that God has afforded you, and you leverage that success for significance and obedience to what God has called you to do. That's what that video about Paul Martinez was about. I mean, he did not become the CEO of anything by being lazy and just sitting back and saying, I'm not going to do anything. No, he worked like crazy. The Bible says from the days of John the Baptist until today, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men and women take hold of it. But what we do is that we, we just aim our sights to what God says he has called us to do instead of at what our world has sold us. You see, success, again, it's not about accomplishment or activity. It's about obedience and identity. That means good godly work does not mean everybody quits their job and comes to work here. Absolutely not. That you go out and this next week you work on purpose and you work for significance and you work on mission and you be obedient to what God has called you to do and not just chase after whatever this world says. So choose for this day whom you will serve. You're going to serve success or you're going to serve the Savior. And one tightly um, adjacent to that is a lot of us worship at the idol of stuff. Stuff. Now, around here, what we, we lovingly call that the cul-de-sac of stupidity. And I don't mean that stuff is stupid. I mean worshiping your stuff is stupid. And here's why it's stupid. Because <clears throat> Paul says to Timothy in 1 first, in first Timothy chapter 6, he says, Timothy, command those who are rich. In other words, when you're preaching to rich people, remind them this. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to put their hope and the instability of money. And you know what so many of us do? We actually put our hope in stuff as if that stuff is gonna do something for us that the last set of stuff could not do for us. And every single time we do that, it's another lap in the cul-de-sac. You see, a cul-de-sac doesn't go anywhere. Now again, we all love stuff. Some of us love stuff we live in, some of us love stuff we drive, some of us love stuff we wear, some of us love stuff that floats. I mean, we all love stuff. 
And I'm okay with stuff. Look, God is a good dad. He loves to give good stuff to his kids as long as we don't worship that stuff, but we worship the giver of the stuff. And the moment we begin to put our hope there, it's an idol that will always let you down. Have you ever bought a new car or a new-to-you car? Can we just be honest? For a little while, it feels awesome. It's okay to say. You get it. I mean, I got a truck one time, and I'm riding off in my truck, and I'm like, I feel like a better man in this truck. And you're just riding around, take the long way home. You're just riding around. Now, the crazy thing is you can't even see yourself in it, so I don't know why we care what it looks like. You're just finding shiny things to drive by to see if you can, like, see yourself real quick, all right? It's ridiculous. But how long does it take? And then it's just your truck. You got French fries in it and door dings in it. And at first, you would park on the other side of the other side of the other side of the mall so it didn't get dinged up. Now, whatever, you don't care because it's just your truck. The problem is, is when that idea hits, you're like, you know what I need? I need a new truck. Because that's what I'm missing. Welcome to another lap in the cul-de-sac of stupidity. It is an idol that can never, ever, ever satisfy you. Every time you've ever walked into a dressing room, you have participated in this. You know how it goes, right? And I would, like, I would just say ladies, but it's just not true. Man, it's you too. You walk into the dressing room and you look at yourself and you're like, how dare you terrible clothes do this to my look? All right? And you take them off and you throw them with passion on the floor and you're like, you crooked and depraved, frumpy, good for nothing, get out of my face. And then you put on some new clothes, right? And you're like, yeah, they know how to size jeans at this place. All right, I knew I was that size. And then you get on a shirt and you feel like a better man. And you look at yourself a couple times and if you're a girl, you do the owl, you know what that is? Like the head spins all the way around. Like poltergeist, you can see it all. It's a spiritual gift, it's true. And so, and in that moment, you feel like something inside of you happened. Here's the thing that we quickly forget. These clothes in this pile that you just damned to hell, they used to make you feel the same way. And in a season, you know what I've learned, fellas? Did you know that clothes had season? I didn't know that. I knew football had season, Santa Claus had season, deer and turkey had season, but you know clothes have seasons? And in one season, they can let you down, and it is foolishness to think, hey, some more new stuff is going to do for me what the last set of new stuff did not do for me. It's just true. Let me really get under your skin. Republicans, look at me real quick, okay? Everybody, all the Republicans in the house, all right? I imagine there's a couple. How do you respond when you see um, a government program that is not working, and the answer for the government, from the government in that non-working program is we need to put more money into the non-working program? Doesn't it just make your head explode? You think, what is wrong with you? Who would do that? Who would continually shovel money into something that does not produce what we're hoping it will produce? Wait a minute. I think every single one of us, when we worship at the idol of stuff, it will not do for you what it promises it will do for you. And so what Jesus calls us to do is to step out of the cul-de-sac of stupidity. You see, now, I'm not the fun police. In fact, is that, that when, when we begin to see this thing rightly, when we begin to not worship the gifts from God, but see every gift as, as a gift from a good dad that loves his kids, it stirs in us not a worship of that thing, but a worship of the giver of that thing. I'll say it this way. A Christian steak tastes better than a non-Christian steak. You don't know that, do you? You see, if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you don't have this understanding that he's a good dad and he loves his kids and you eat a good steak, then all you can do is enjoy the steak and, and, and your enjoyment terminates at the steak. But if you walk with Jesus, you understand that, he's, that God is a good dad and he gives good gifts to his kids. And when you, when you cut into that bone-in ribeye cooked medium rare the way Jesus would have us eat it, then, then you can say... Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And it stirs in us worship of a good dad who would invent the bone-in ribeye so his kids could enjoy dinner. Amen? Amen. So, choose for this day. Choose for this day. You're going you're gonna to follow after God of stuff, or are you going to follow after your Savior? Now, the most common and complex idol of our time is this. It's the, it's the idol of self. It's the idol of self. And here's how I know it's most popular because you go into any, any kind of Christian bookstore or any bookstore at all, and the largest section in the entire store is the self-help section. And so there are a lot of us that worship at the idol of self-improvement. Self-improvement. And here's what you think. You think, if I could just be a better version of me, oh, then all my dreams will be fulfilled. And here's how you know that's a lie, okay? 
We're, about, we're a couple of weeks away from April. How's that New Year's resolution working out for you? Huh? How's that going? I mean, honestly, has anybody ever let you down more than you? Which tells me you may need somebody greater than you, bigger than you, smarter than you, been around longer in you to help you. And God forbid you ever, you ever worship at the idol of self-appearance, right? Because that's what we think. We think, man, if I could just get in shape, if I could just get some abs, then oh, all would be well. <laughs> let me tell you. First of all, if that's where you're going to put your hope, it's going to let you down. Not figuratively. Literally stuff is going to fall down that used to be up. Do you understand, okay? And I am telling you, and let me just say this. If you're in your 20s, bless your heart. Take a picture. Enjoy it. This is as good as it ever gets, kids. All right? I'm telling you, it is all downhill from that. Amen. From the 40-year-old and up crowd. I'm in. The other side of 40, it's a steep decline, people. Let me just tell you. There was a time in my life where I was athletic and I was flexible. I mean, seriously, now I wake up in the morning sore. I'm like, man, I am so sore. What, what did I do yesterday, Gretchen? She's like, you slept. <laughs> so at 42 years old, going from here to here in the night requires Advil. You understand? <laughs> so you put your hope in that, in what you look like, I'm telling you, it is a never-ending battle. A never-ending battle. Because you've got two great enemies there, time and gravity. They are not your friend, darling. I promise you, all right? Now, if you've got enough change, you can run down somewhere and you can nip it and tuck it and stretch it and Botox it and, you know, and you can delay it for a little while, but eventually it looks like you lost a fight. You know, you're like, just look weird. <laughs> just something. It's weird. It's terrible, isn't it? Now listen, if that's your role, hey, you know, if, hey, if the house needs painting, paint the house. But it ain't going to change anything on the inside of the house. You put your hope in that, and I promise it'll let you down. And the reality is this, even if you nailed all of your objectives, I mean, if you walked in here six months from now and just ripped, I mean, abs for days and cash falling out your pocket, and you learned a new language, hola. And you were the best version of you you've ever hit. And guess what? There's still something missing in here. There's still something. I mean, if you accomplish it all, but you don't know Jesus, every one of those idols will let you down. They will not fully and finally satisfy. So some, some people worship at self-improvement, some at self-satisfaction. And that just is this. Your appetites or your feeling are your God. You say, you ain't the boss of me. I'm going to do what I want with who I want when I want. If it feels good to me, I'm going to do it. Let me tell you the problem with an appetite. You cannot trust your appetites. They will always mislead you. They will always trick you. Your appetite has a very short vocabulary, now and more. That's all your appetite will tell you. And if you begin to go down that road, let me just tell you, it leads somewhere where you do not want to go. And the thing that, the thing that we think is going to happen, you say, man, if I just feed this appetite a little bit, I will be fully and finally satisfied. You see, self-satisfaction in the beginning is satisfying, is it not? But you know what happens when you feed an appetite. It doesn't quench the appetite. The appetite grows bigger and bigger and bigger. Remember Thanksgiving? Remember about an hour after Thanksgiving meal? I mean, you're sitting back in yoga pants or either you got buttons flying all over the room and you think, I'm not going to eat for a week. And by the Detroit halftime, you're in the refrigerator just eating turkey sandwiches. Why? Because when you feed that appetite, it grows bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so if you go down this self-satisfaction path, it leads somewhere where you don't want to go. I remember when I was in student ministry, I did youth ministry for 15 years. And I had, a, I had a kid who was 17 years old. I think he was a junior in high school. He had decided to wait until he was married to have sex. And he was just lamenting over that with me in my office. And he says, Pastor Joby, I just feel like if I could just do it one time, then I would have that out of my system. And I was like, oh, <laughs> am I being punked? What? Oh, you really think that? No, 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 no. That is not how it works at all. And you see, you know the enemy's mission statement is in the Bible. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And the, and the idol of self-satisfaction baits you down a road and then blames you for getting to the end of that road. You find any person that's coming out of an addiction, 
And there are a lot here at 1122. And the reason you come here to 1122 is because the cross is out of us all. Every single one of us are addicted to something. The only difference between you and us is you have admitted it. And this is a safe place for you. And you can get up and get on your feet because Jesus came out of that grave. You are welcome in this place. Amen. But you find somebody that's serious about coming out of an addiction. And what they will say is, in the beginning, it was fun. I mean, it was really fun. You know what the crazy thing about temptation is? It's tempting. You should write that down. I'm still waiting for somebody to be like, oh, thank you, Sensei, for your wise words. It is true. The beginning of that is fun. I mean, people are like, drink this, man, drink this, drink this, drink. You know what happens if you drink this? You'll get in shape, learn to play volleyball, you have a bunch of friends on the beach. That's what the commercials say. And then you're like, yeah, drink this, drink this. I got this, I got this, I got this. And then after a little while, it's got you. And you think, uh-oh, I don't got this. And it could be a prescription or it could be... Uh, it could be alcohol, it could be any kind of chemical, it could be a pornography addiction, it could be any kind of addiction started out this way. This is not a big deal, man. You're the boss of you. You do what you want with, you want, with who you want, when you want. And then you start walking down that road for a little while, and you think, you think, I got this. And then one day you realize it's got you. And the enemy, the enemy wants you to worship at that idol of self-satisfaction so that it can lead you to a place of bondage. So the question is, choose for this day whom you will serve. You're going to serve our Savior or self-satisfaction? Now, there's another self that we, that we serve too sometimes. It's an idol. It's self-righteousness or religion. And religion is really just self-improvement with a robe and a hymnal. A religion is, no, I'm going to be a better version of me. I'm not just going to work out and, and get a new, learn a new language, but I'm just going to you know, go to the holy man down at the church, and whatever list he says do these things and don't do these things. I am going to prove my worth to God by being a good Christian. You realize there is no such thing as a good Christian? And if you, if you honestly, if you grew up in and around Jacksonville, you've had some kind of experience where you went to a place and they said to you, this is what good Christians do and this is what good Christians don't do. And let's just be honest, it's exhausting. The list I grew up with is good Christians don't drink, smoke, or chew, go with girls who do. That was our list. They were my favorite girls, so it was very problematic, okay? And in Dylan, they all chewed, so I, we were in trouble. The prom queen was like, how y'all doing? All right, that's just how it was. <laughs> and I literally believe, we, li we were taught this, okay, that if Jesus came back and you were in a rated R movie, you were left behind. That was it. That's what we thought. I can remember standing outside of Terminator 2 going, how long is this movie? I mean, two hours? <sighs> An hour I'll risk, but two hours I might get hung up in the theater. You understand? When he comes back. And then, you know what really blew our mind? A rated R movie about the crucifixion of Jesus came out. What do you do? What do you do? It's exhausting. Around here, we call that beach ball theology. If you think the Christian life is about sin management, it's going to wear you out and you don't understand the gospel. It's like holding a beach ball under the water. You see, you can do it for a little while, but depending on your arm strength, the size of the waves that day, and how much sunscreen is on your hands... That's how long you can hold it under the water. And when you do finally, when it, when it breaks free, it never comes up easy. It always comes up in a fury. And anybody that thinks Christianity is sin management, let me just grab my sin and by my own power, hold them down. It is exhausting and you are declaring yourself righteous. It is not about your activity. It's about Christ's activity on the cross. You see, the answer to the beach ball theology is Jesus on the cross. When he died on the cross and says, it is finished, it counted for you. That means he walks by with a pocket knife and sticks your beach ball, and all the air comes out of it. Then you just look kind of silly trying to hold this thing down when Jesus has taken all the power out of it. So choose for this day. Choose for this day whom you will serve. You're going to serve yourself, or you're going to serve the Savior. So some of us worship success and some stuff and some self. Here's one growing in popularity these days. Some of us worship status. Status, And here's how I know. Because a bunch of you have checked your Facebook status four times since I started preaching. Because it matters so much what everybody thinks about you. And here's what you do when you worship status. You take the keys to your contentment and you just hand them out to a bunch of broken people. And you say, when you all think rightly about me, then and only then will I be happy and content. And that is a miserable way to live. The moment you hand the keys of contentment to anyone other than our Lord and Savior and Creator, Jesus Christ, let the pretend game and the performance trap begin. And the problem is, I'm telling you, the problem 
when we compare ourselves to what everybody else's social media world looks like, is you're comparing your, your B-roll to their highlight reel. You're comparing what you know about you to what you don't know about them. And can I just say this? Like, like their Instagram account is not their real life. My Instagram account is not my real life. Have you seen my Facebook account? It is ridiculous. We have a team of people here that work on it. I, I hate to burst your bubble. But if you go and look at my Facebook account, it is this pretty incredible picture of me taken by a professional photographer at one of our services. I typically have my Bible up like this, and there's this perfect light and a little beam from heaven, just boom. <laughs> and like in this portion right here of my picture, there's this incredible quote of something that I said from the sermon. Do you know who is not impressed with my Facebook account? My wife and children. They look at it and they're like, look at dad. <laughs> you know what they think my Facebook pictures ought to look like? All like tired and disheveled and wrinkled face from the pillow going, where are my keys? Like in big words right here, where are my keys? That's what it's really like. Do you realize that? That you're comparing yourself with stuff that's not even real. You see, like, you know, you'll get, on, you'll get online and you'll see that, that my family went to the beach and you're like, oh, I wish my family was like that. They look perfect. I mean, my perfectly beautiful, good-singing wife and my two little beautiful blonde-headed kids and then me, right? And you see this picture and we just look so happy. Let's be honest. Have you ever seen a happy mom at the beach? No. No. They don't exist. They don't. They show up and they're like, you got there too deep. Quit hitting your sister. Don't put sand in that. You better get over here and help me raise these people. You can't just make them in there. No, You know, that's how it goes. There's not a mom out here who's like, oh, just bless her hearts. Here's the family. Maybe we just pray together and bask in the sun. No, it's miserable. Absolutely miserable. And then right before you go, you get the whole family together. Come on here, bunch up. Shut up, quit doing it. All right, smile. Ready? One, two, three. And we look perfect. In fact, even the invention of the selfie. What is that? By the way, men, let me show you how to take a selfie if you're a man, okay? You get your phone out right here. Not that high, a little bit lower, a little bit lower. A little bit lower, and then you put it away because a grown man shouldn't take a selfie. Okay. That's just true. <clears throat> now, by the way, if you're new here and you take yourself very seriously, you're not going to like it here, all right? So, but the rest of us are having a great time. So, now... <clears throat> The reality is, if we're honest, I know this is church, no place for that, but if, if you're honest, all of us in some sense struggle with some of these idols that creep into our lives. And so the deal is, is that we've got to identify what the idols are that we tend to worship. Tim Keller writes this incredible book called Counterfeit Gods. I would highly suggest that you read it. And he asked these four diagnostic questions that will help identify what the idol behind the idol is. And here they are. It says, what is my greatest nightmare? What do you worry about the most? The second one, how do I comfort myself? I mean, do you run to the loving arms of your heavenly father or do you run to a website or a relationship and he ain't your husband or a website or to a, to a prescription bottle but your name is not on the label? I mean, how do you comfort yourself? Where does pride begin to creep into your life? I mean, what are you proud of? And you know what on this one? This one can be a really good thing. You know what an idol in my life can be very quickly? You. What you think about me can matter too much. And I consistently have to lay that one down at the feet of the cross and say, Jesus, I just got to be the mailman. I didn't write it. I just deliver it. And if they don't like it and send me an email, I'll forward it on to you. I have to consistently do that. Or it could be your family or your work or some great success. So what do you worry about? <clears throat> How do you comfort yourself? Where is pride creeping in? And last of all, what do you expect out of life? I mean, what do you, I know you'd never say it this way, but what do you feel like God owes you? What does God owe you? You see, Jesus preached a sermon on this same topic in Matthew chapter seven. Jesus says this, and it's why we've been asking our church for two years, we're gonna ask, is he before all things or are you putting some other things in front of him? Jesus says it this way. He says in Matthew seven, beginning of 24, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And we know from Matthew chapter 16 that the rock here is surrendering your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And Jesus says, upon this rock, the public declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Jesus says you got two options. Option one is you can build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ. Option two, verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Now, here's what's crazy. Before the, before the storm comes, both houses look great. You really can't tell the difference. Here's something else that's just true. Whether you build your life on Jesus or not, the storms are coming. Anytime you hear somebody preaching that if you just believe in Jesus, everything just gets better, get your stuff, get your kids, don't go back to that church, okay? Because the reality, reality of the gospel is the storms come on us all. They do. But for those of us who build our life on the rock of Jesus, we can withstand it. Then the way the whole sermon is summed up in verse 28 says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You know why he had authority? Because he is the creator of life. He may know how to live it. And what he is saying is the engine to the human condition, the fuel for that engine is Jesus himself. And you put anything else in the fuel tank and it might get you by for a little while, but eventually you start to sputter and it starts to rot from the inside out, not the outside in. And so here's the reality of an idol is that our, our idols cannot be tamed. They can only be toppled. And a lot of times what we try to do as Christians is we actually try to tame our idols. We think, I got this, and you don't got this. It is there to kill, steal, and destroy you. Do you ever see these, these, uh, these news events? They come out every year. There's some idiot that tried to tame a wild animal, and the animal eats her face off every year, right? Tonight at 4 o'clock, jaguar eats a woman's face off. And then the neighbor's like, I'm so surprised. The jaguar cuddles was so sweet. It's a jaguar. That's what they do. It's a missile with teeth and claws. That's just what they're built to do. Sin is the same way. You cannot tame that kind of idol. Eventually, it will eat your face off. It will turn on you because that's what it was created to do. A jaguar is an apex predator. It just pounces and kills stuff, okay? I mean, you put a plate of Dick's wings here in front of me right now. They might make it through the service, but eventually I'm going to pounce on them and I win because that's what I was created to do. You cannot tame it. You can only topple it. The way the Puritans would say it is this, much more eloquently than I do, but the Puritans would say the only way to dislodge something from your heart that you see as beautiful is you replace it with something infinitely more beautiful. It's kind of the point of uh, one of the points of Romeo and Juliet. I mean, it's, it's basically what Shakespeare was teaching us. I know you guys are all super familiar with Romeo and Juliet, but in Act 1, Scene 1, uh, Romeo, he's obsessed. He's in love with, he's pining over Rosalind. I mean, if you read through it, he just can't stop talking about Rosalind, how beautiful Rosalind is, to the point where his boys get over it, and they're like, bro, get over Rosalind. She's not that awesome. Go to this party with us. There's a lot hotter chicks at this party than Rosalind. Very loose interpretation of Shakespeare, but that's the whole, that's Act 1. And then the one, the one scene that everybody knows, right, that everybody knows, is that, is that Romeo lays eyes on Juliet. She's up on the balcony. He's down on the ground. And he says, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill this envious moon. That's Rosalind. That's what he thinks of her now. And he says, who is already sick and pale with grief, that thou her maid art far more fair than she. Be not her maid, since she is envious. Her vestal livery is but sick and green. Here's what he's saying. He's like, Rosalind, compared to you, Juliet, is like a gallbladder gone bad. That's what he says. <laughs> now, if you grew up Baptist, you were covering Baptist, here's the way we used to sing it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face, and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, the point here in Choose for This Day, whom you will serve, is not about sin management. It's not stop doing bad stuff. It's that you fall more and more and more with Jesus. You fall in love with Jesus. You get your eyes on him. You say, it is the east and arise. Jesus is the sun, and compared to Jesus, everything else this world has to offer, it's nothing. And so this is, this is Joshua's sermon. He says, choose this day who you will serve. 
And if you're going to serve those other gods, then go for it. Then he goes on to say, but as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. He goes, as far as me and my house, you see, Joshua knew what it was like to stand up and act like a man. He said, as far as me and my house, we're not going to do, we're not going to do our house the way the rest of this world does house. And he says, as head of my house, I'm not going to dress myself like a king. I'm going to dress myself like a servant. And I'm going to love my wife like Christ loved the church. And I'm not going to lord fear and and domination over my children, but I'm going to train them up in the way we should go. And I'm going to stand at the front door of my house and say, not in my house. No, 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 no. The filth of this world is not going to enter here through these TV screens. Absolutely not. And as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Because we see what this world has to offer, and Jesus is just better. Now, at this point, at this point, all the people are listening. We're on, we're on verse 16. All the people are listening, and they're like, okay, okay, great sermon, Joshua, great sermon. You're right. We'll pick Jesus. This is what they say, 16. And the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And then when you get down to verse 18, they end their little spiel with this. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And then the way Joshua answers is really, it'll kind of throw you off at first. Joshua answers this way, 19. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is the holy God. In other words, Joshua says, it doesn't work that way. To which the people are probably like, what are you talking about? You just did this entire hour sermon on choose for this day whom you will serve. You made a compelling argument as to why, not, why we should not serve the idols of this world. So we pick Jesus. And here's what Joshua is saying. If you're just going to try harder, it just won't work. Let's be honest. How many of you have done the try harder method? The God is good. You are bad. Try harder. See you next week. It just doesn't work. And then, then what begins to happen is your entire life is about remorse and resolution. And what that means is that we're trying to please God by our own activity, and that will never, ever, ever work. It is not about our activity. It is about our identity in Christ. And our identity in Christ is found in the activity of Jesus on the cross, that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made his righteousness. And that's why, that's why Joshua says, hey, listen, it's not try harder. And then when you get down to verse 23, he says it this way. He says, all right, so put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. See, now we're talking. He said, this is a heart issue. This is about what you do with your heart, that you surrender your heart to the Lordship of Christ, not just work on your external activity. I've told you this a million times before. Christianity is not an outside-in thing. It's an inside-out thing. Like sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian anymore and sticking your head in the oven makes you a biscuit. That is not how it works. It, it has a start from within here. And so he says it's a heart issue. Incline your heart to the Lord. Jesus would say in John chapter 15, draw near to me. He says, he says, abide in me. Stay close to me. This is about a heart relationship with you and God. Because he's a good dad. And he says, choose for this day whom you're going to serve. And if you get to that place where you say, okay, yeah, I want to serve God. How would I do that? Here's how you do it. You surrender to him. It's not about activity. It's not about do more, try harder. It's actually quit and allow what he did on the cross to count for you. Verse 24, and the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. And so Joshua made a covenant, a covenant with the people. See, God is a covenantal God. He wants to make a covenant with you. Here's the covenant. A covenant is not if you do your part, I do my part. That's contract. That's works-based righteousness. That's a contract. God, if I do my part, will you love me? And God's like, look, I'm not, I'm not the phone company. Praise God. I am not into contracts. I'm into a covenant. And a covenant is, no matter what, here's what I promise I'm going to do. And so you know what God did? God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. That Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation means a payment that satisfies which means that God could never be dissatisfied in anyone that surrenders their life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That it's about a covenant, a heart covenant. So here's the point, and it's a question that today I want you to answer. Will you build your life on the rock of surrender to Jesus or on the shifting sands of self? The way Joshua said it is choose for this day whom you will serve. You're gonna continue to chase after the things of this world and what it offers? Or are you ready to fully surrender all of you to the one that sent his son on a rescue mission for you? C.S. Lewis says it this way in Mere Christianity. He's speaking on behalf of God. He says, give me all of you. 
I don't want so much of your time and so much of your talent and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I've not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants, all of your wishes, and all of your dreams. Turn them all over to me and give yourself to me, and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself. In exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. So Church of 1122, whether you've been in church every weekend of your life or this is your very first time, one of the One of the beautiful graces and mercy of God is that every single one of us is invited, every single one of us is invited to choose this day whom you will serve. And you can continue to serve the gods of this world or today could be the day that you say, you know what, I give up. I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. From this day forward, I wanna build my house on the rock of Jesus because when he died on the cross, I believe that it counted for me. Would you please bow your head and close your eyes? Would you just ask yourself that fundamental question? It's only the most important question that you'll answer in all eternity. This day, do you want to build your life on surrendering to Jesus, or do you want to build your life on the shifting sands of this world? And if you're ready to, to surrender to Christ, if you, if you admit it, that you've been the Lord of your own life, and you've been chasing after the things of this world, and you believe that when Christ died on the cross, it counted for you. And in this moment, you are ready to confess him as Lord and Savior for the very first time. Then you just tell him, right from your heart, you just tell him. And if that's you, if you say, yep, this is my moment of surrender, I would just ask you to just lift your hand in this place. All over this worship center, all over every location, you would lift your hand and say, Lord, here I am, I surrender. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that salvation belongs to you. God, we thank you that even this day, in all of our locations, God, that there are men and women and students, they are choosing this day whom they are gonna serve. And by the love of Jesus, the love of a heavenly Father, the power of the Holy Spirit, God, that there are men and women and students right now building their life on the rock that is Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you please stand to your feet? See, we respond to God for who he is and what he's done. That's what worship is. That's why we join our voices together and sing. And if you're irregular here, we worship God in our finances by bringing back to God our first and best, our tithes and offerings, because he loved us first by sending his best in Jesus. And we also, we built these altars down here because the Bible says, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. And a lot of us are struggling with a lot of stuff. And what we would encourage you to do is get out of your seat and come down here and throw those cares upon a God that cares so much for you. Let us respond.